to introduce the speaker for tonight. Well, I'm Ron, compulsive overeater, recovering know-it-all. To get the, uh, can you hear me? I can't hear it. Thank you. Um, To get the numbers out of the way, I've been in program 27 years, and I have 25 years of abstinence. My top weight was 198 pounds, and I wanted to lie and say 200 because 200 sounded better than 198, but I never made 200, thank God. My bottom weight was 125 pounds. I became anorexic because I have a disease of more. So I came in. I wanted a diet. That's all I wanted. So we had the gray sheet. We had the orange sheet. We had all those different sheets in those days. And I took the gray sheet, and I lost the weight, and I think it was in four months. I was not at my top weight when I came into the program. I think I was 168 at that time going back up. I'm one of those yo-yos, and there are some people who are just yo's. But that's not my experience. Um... So, let's see. Well, let me, let me start at the beginning. I was born and raised in Los Angeles to what I consider a lower middle class Jewish family. And the reason I say that is because we could not afford to go to May Company. <laughs> May Company was way too expensive. It was like the Neiman Marcus or the Needless Markup, as they call it, of uh, Los Angeles. And uh, we could only afford Sears. And there was a Sears over on Pico and something. No, further east than that. Yeah, way over there. And, um, uh, and I was embarrassed. I had to go to the chubby section. I didn't like that. But when I was born and, uh, and for uh, a, a number of years of my childhood, I was underweight. Um, I didn't understand that when I looked at pictures and I went, I was skinny. But around eight or nine, I had my uh, tonsils taken out and my parents told me that I could have as much ice cream as I wanted. And I did. And I found something out. I found out that food made me feel good. It got rid of all the crazies in my life And it was the only thing that did not say to me, you're a bad boy. You shouldn't do that. It was always there for me. It loved me. And it was always consistent. A Snickers bar always tasted like a Snickers bar. I can't say that people were like that. (laughs) Uh, When I got into junior high, my life changed because we had nutrition. We didn't have an elementary school. And I majored in nutrition at lunch at junior high school. And um, I stole money in order that I could get my fix during, during uh, the intermission or whatever the nutrition. And it was the only way that I could. I was a short, fat little kid. And uh, I could not figure out how to fit in. I, I had a couple friends. Um, but I wasn't among the cool guys 
And uh, I was very ashamed of my body. I uh, became more aware of that in uh, junior high because we had to strip for gym, which in elementary school I never had to do. So I didn't have to show this short, fat body uh, to any other kids. And I was demoralized. I was embarrassed. Uh, I, I started doing something that I did not learn to stop doing until I came into program, and that is comparing myself to other people. When I looked at the other kids in the seventh grade, they were skinny, and they looked normal, and I saw myself as being short and fat. And so I ate more over that. I was also uh, the last one chosen on a team and the first one to be beaten up. <laughs> and I had to find ways to get home so that I didn't get beaten up. Uh, not on a daily basis, but quite often. Uh, because I was the one who either lost the game, whatever we were playing, or because I couldn't, you know. Nobody ever spent time with me. My dad, who actually lived in the house, uh, seemed to want nothing to do with me. And, uh, and I kept thinking, there's something wrong with me, that Daddy doesn't want to spend time with me. And, um, and I discovered that he was a workaholic, and he was interested in making a name for himself, which he did. And, um, uh, and he didn't have time for his kids. And I had a mother who was a compulsive overeater and an abuser. I was physically abused, I was mentally abused, and I was molested as a child. I couldn't talk to anybody about that until I came into program. And I walked around with two sentences on my forehead, I am not enough. And there's something wrong with me. And I spent much of my life trying to prove that to be true. Never knew I was doing that. I said, I was at a meeting this morning, and I said I used to go to therapists and spend a lot of money lying to them. Because <laughs> I never wanted to get better. I just paid for them to listen to me like a friend. Didn't have a lot of friends. And I couldn't open up and tell my friends what was really going on because of what they would think of me. I was terrified. I used to do things for people so that you would like me. And I didn't realize until I came into program that that's what I was doing. I was a giver. I was a rescuer. I went and I did things for people all the time thinking that I was doing it out of the goodness of my heart. And then when I came into program and I started working program and I started getting honest, I began to realize I was doing it so that you would like me. You'd have to like me because of all the good things I did for you. Well, I kept eating and, uh, you know, it went up and down and up and down. And um, in November of 1979, I uh, came to my uh, sister, who sadly has died from our disease, and two years ago, sadly, and um, I came to her and I said, I can't stop eating and I want to commit suicide. Now, I have a psychology degree, a master's in it, and the only thought in my mind was committing suicide. This is not sane thinking. I didn't know it at the time. Um, but it was not same thinking. And she said to me, why don't you go to OA? Now, OA was Order of the Arrow. 
in the Boy Scouts. <laughs> I know, because I was a member. And I said to her, how am I going to lose weight in the Boy Scouts? She said, no, 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 it's Overeaters Anonymous. Never heard of Overeaters Anonymous. I heard of AA because we had somebody from AA come and speak to us uh, in, our, uh, in our graduate class. But nothing of OA. And there was no such thing as an eating disorder in those days, or at least not spoken about. So I come into OA, and I'm a good dieter. I don't have any problem with that. So I got a diet. They told me I needed to get a sponsor. I had no idea what a sponsor was. So I just picked this woman, and I said, how would you like to sponsor me? She said, fine, call me every day. Tell me what you're going to eat. Now, the interesting thing is, over the, over the years, of course, I've sponsored a lot of people, and later they've come back and made amends and said, I lied to you about what I was eating. And I would never think of doing that, because I'm a great dieter. So when I called and I said, you know, I'm going to eat, this or this or this or whatever. That was it. That's what I ate. Uh, I didn't even know I could lie about it. <laughs> it didn't make any sense to me. Uh, because I had the, uh, the delusion that thin was well. See? If I get skinny, I don't have to work the steps. I don't have to find a higher power. I don't have to go to that. You know, all I have to do is get skinny. So I went from 168 pounds down to 125 pounds. I was a 28 or 29 waist, and I had dimples. I never knew that people had dimples on their, their lower, above their rear end, I think they're kidney dimples, I don't know what they are, but being fat, <laughs> and besides, who could see the back anyway? And, um, but somehow I noticed that I had dimples, and I thought, I've, I've arrived. <laughs> I'm Mr. O.A. And I walked around like, you know, like I was, I was the, the Mr. O.A., and you can't tell me anything because you're fat and I'm not. And uh, never knew that that wasn't programmed. But what did I know? I went to a meeting every day, and then we would, um, we would play a game called Can You Top This? <laughs> so somebody would talk about some horrible thing that's going on in their life, and the next person would say, You think that's bad? <laughs> so I figured this was cheap group therapy. Why not? Nobody's asking me to do anything. I'm 125 pounds, and uh, I'm skinny, so I must be well. And then we go to lunch, uh, and we talk about everybody in the meeting, never knowing <laughs> that that was not supposed to happen. But um, uh, there's no such thing as anonymity within program. But I've never had anybody talk about me outside a program that I'm aware of. But inside a program, you know, it's the, uh, I forgot what they call it. We used to have a name for it. But uh, I don't care. The important thing is that after, I think, about three and a half years, a woman came up to me and she said, you do not look happy, joyous, and free. And I said, well, I'm not. She said, you need to go to AA. And I said, they drink there. <laughs> she said, I don't care. You need to go there. Now, you have to understand, the only drinks I liked were drinks with umbrellas in them. Not because of the alcohol, because of the sugar. I didn't like being out of control. And when I told that to people in AA, they went, you what? 
And they look at me and say, you're such a normie. Because I don't like being out of control. So, of course, I have no control issues, but I don't like being out of control. <laughs> so I went to AA, and I sat there, and I listened, and I listened, and I listened, and she comes up to me. She apparently went to that meeting, too. She said, you don't look happy, joyous, and free. And I said, well, I've only been here a week. She said, but you don't look happy, joyous, and free. I said, but I've only been here a week. So she looked at me, and she said, why don't you listen to the similarities instead of the dissimilarities? And I never knew that that's what I was doing. I was trying to prove that I was not like them. But you see, whether you're in any of the anonymous programs, the one thing that connects all of us is our feelings. I found out, because I went to AA meetings almost every day for 10 years, and I found out that their feelings were exactly the same as mine feeling less than, very afraid, and not knowing how to fit in. And so I went to AA and stuff like that, and uh, I started hearing recovery. I heard that you can act your way into good thinking, but not think your way into good actions. Never heard that in OA or psychology. or I learned all kinds of really wonderful, wonderful uh, recovering ideas so then this woman comes up to me and she said, you don't look happy, joyous, and free. There's a theme going on here, you notice? And she said, you don't look happy, joyous, and free. And I said, I'm not. She said, you need, listen to this, a fourth step sponsor. Never heard of that. I've heard of food sponsors. I've heard of step sponsors. I've heard of other kind of sponsors, but never a fourth step sponsor. So I said to her, because, of course, I was arrogant. There's nobody in OA that has what I want. She said, good. Who terrifies you the most in this meeting, meaning the AA meeting? And I said, that bully over there named Captain Serenity. She said, good. Go ask him to be your sponsor. I said, you have a death wish for me. He, he represents every bully that I dealt with as a kid. I said... You're asking me to go and ask this guy? He's going to shoot me and that's it. I won't have any problems anymore. She said, I don't think he's like that. So I'm, I'm a coward. So I called him on the phone. Wasn't going to walk up to him. And said, uh, Captain, I'd like you to be my sponsor. He said, are you an alcoholic? He's very loving. I said, no. He said, what are you? I said, I'm a compulsive overeater. He said, oh, I don't sponsor them. They're crazy. <laughs> I said, well, Tom, I will do whatever you tell me to do. He said, we'll see. He said, I want you to call me for 30 days. I want you to call me at 5 o'clock. He said, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'll kill you. I've killed 11 people and I got away with it. And if you want to be my 12th, don't call me one day. It got my attention. And I called him every day. He told me to do very simple things. He said that every problem, the answer is in the first 164 pages of this book. So he said, we're going to learn this backwards and forwards because if you share your opinion, you help no one. 
If you share the recovery from the big book, you can help another human being because it has helped thousands and thousands and thousands of people. There was a group in Canada that did not have any outside involvement with AA. They only had the big book. Their recovery was higher in that group than any AA group in the United States because they only had the big book. They didn't have opinions. They didn't have sponsors. They just did what the big book said. So he told me, I want you to read a half a page a day, no more than that, and underline the one main idea. Call me at 5 o'clock and tell me. So I did that, called him on the phone. What is your one main idea? Told him what it was. And I'm waiting for him to yell at me and tell me I did it wrong. I'm an SOB. Why should he sponsor me? He said, good. Do the second half of the page tomorrow and call me. I said, Tom, you didn't beat me up and tell me I did it wrong. He said, I'll make a deal with you. He said, you would never allow anyone to treat you as badly as you treat yourself. He said, you give me the whips, and the baseball bat. And when I think you deserve it, we'll sit and talk about it. Huh. Maybe I could trust somebody? So I called him every day. After a period of time, he, uh, uh, I had a, a, a baby, somebody I sponsored. She had a bad back. She had gone into surgery. I don't know what happened. I don't know whether the surgery was, uh, was successful or not. I'd gone to see her a number of times in the hospital. She checked herself out of the hospital, went home, and killed herself. She had two children in elementary school who came home and found her dead. I went to the funeral. I came back. It was, uh, I think, a Friday night. I was devastated, and I called Tom. It's not 5 o'clock, but I called him. And I said, Tom, I said, I, I just went through something that has me absolutely devastated. Just tell me what it is. And I said, somebody that I sponsored checked herself out of the hospital, came home, committed suicide, and her two elementary school children found her dead. And you know what he said to me? That has to hurt. And I broke down and started crying. Could not believe that he didn't call me a wimp, didn't make fun of me. All he said, he got very soft and he said, that's got to hurt. And our relationship changed. And I didn't find out until a year later why it changed. I asked him, have I changed at all? He says, don't you remember when you called me at 11 o'clock at night and you told me that your, your baby committed suicide? He said, that was the first time you were honest with me. He said, I didn't have to yell at you. That's what we want. We want people to be rigorously honest with themselves and a higher power and maybe somebody else. Then he said to me, you know, in order to help people recognize that Overeaters Anonymous is not a cutesy diet and that it really kills people, and to make this woman's life meaningful. Go to meetings and share that. 
so that maybe someone can recognize that this is not a diet club. This is a program that kills. I've been in program 27 years, and I've seen a number of people die from this disease. I watched my sister kill herself. They wrote down heart attack from diabetes. But she used to call me in tears and say, I can't stop eating. And all I could say to her is, sweetheart, I know. Because the big book tells me I have to stop playing God. And as much as I wanted my sister to live, there was nothing I could do. It was totally between her and her higher power. And when she died, this program taught me that I could mourn. And I could cry unashamedly and get my feelings out and not keep them inside of me and eat over them. Um, after I worked with Tom a while, Tom says, uh, I was, I was uh, going up to visit my family and I was very nervous about that. And I said, Tom, I don't know what to do when I go up to visit my family. And he said, well, why don't you go with an attitude of what you can bring instead of what you can get? And I didn't even know I was doing that. But he was absolutely right. So I went up there. Oh, no, he said, do something for someone else and not get found out. Now, when I first did that, I was at a, uh, uh, an AA club, and I went and I anonymously took a, a coffee cup and I washed it. Anonymously put it away, called him on the phone. He said, what did you do for someone and not get found out? I said, I washed a cup and I put it away. He said, good, do something else tomorrow. So when I went up to my, uh, to my family, he said, go with an attitude of what you can bring instead of what you can do, you know, what you can get. So I went up there and I cleaned my sister's bathroom. Now, I don't know what anybody thought because it was, you know, it was a, a mess when I walked in and it looked like homes and gardens when I came out, but it didn't matter. And I was invited back a lot. But, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, it didn't matter whether they knew. I didn't do it so I would get a pat on the back. And that's what he said I want you to learn. I want you to learn to give things to other people and not expect anything in return. Because we do this program for fun and for free. We don't need rewards. Our reward is abstinence and knowing that our God loves us. So that was, that was pretty cool. Um, as I continued working the steps, and I got to the fourth step, and everybody, or a lot of people get very frightened of the fourth step, I had already done a number of four steps before going to Tom. He told me, I want you to do it, as it says on page 64, and I want you to go down, not across. He says, it doesn't explain that in the big book, but you go down. Then you have no worries. Because all you have to do is write down the first thing, which is just names of people, you know. And he said, that's not painful. So you write a bunch of names. Be sure to put your name on top. But he said, just write a bunch of names. And then when I finished that, I went up to the second column and wrote... Uh, what, the, what 
what uh, was the cause, I forgot, whatever the thing is, and, uh, but go down. And so I went down, and then he said, then we go over to the third column, which is how it affects my security, fear, whatever it is. You write it down. He says, you don't have to think about any of that. Just write it down. See, I would tell my life story to anybody sitting on a park bench. <laughs> so doing a fourth step was nothing. Who cared, you know? So I do. Then he said, when you finish, come to my house. We will sit down and we will do the fourth column. And I said, Tom, there's no fourth column in here. He said, yes, there is. It's just not in there. So I go over to his house. We sit down. And I talk and talk about all the, everything that went on and stuff like that. And he said, now we're going to go over to the fourth column, which is, what was your part of it? So, and that also was not hard. Because I just told him all the people that, you know, and what I had done and all that kind of stuff. He didn't react to it. It was no big deal, you know. There was no shame. He wasn't putting me down. And so we started looking at what was my side in it. And... Um, then he said to me, you know, you've, you've, you've done a good fourth step. He said, but it's a moral inventory, not an immoral inventory. So I said, well, what does that mean? He said, you have to put down the good things you did as well as the bad things you did. You didn't write down anything you did that was good. And nobody is 100% bad. They tell me that, that Adolf Hitler loved his bird. <laughs> So, you know, nobody's 100%. So, started working on that. And uh, he said, uh, and then we'll move on. He said, now, the, the harms list, the list of people that I had harmed, he said, that's no big deal either because you can get that from your fourth and fifth step. But he said, the important thing is that you do not make amends to anybody until you talk to me. And I said, why? He said, because you have no right to make amends to somebody else if, if it's going to harm them. I'll give you an example of that. My sister, the one who died, came and made amends to me for molesting me as a child. I didn't know she did that. And it explained to me why I go hysterical if anybody pins me down. I mean, I get hysterical if people pin me down. Now I understand that. I went through years of pain over that. And Tom said to me, no one has the right to do that, to assuage their own feelings. You don't make amends to somebody until you check with somebody that has been through the program so that you can make sure that you don't cause more pain and havoc. And I said, well, what do I do with people that I... I you know, that I hurt, that I don't even know who they are. He said, you treat the next people better. I said, that's it? That's all it is. When you meet somebody, treat them better. That's all. He said, this is not a program of beating ourselves up. This is a program of loving ourselves to recovery. Really making an effort to do a little bit at a time. I used to, you know, I, he used to say to me, you're only responsible for that much recovery today. Can you do that? And I went, yeah. I always thought I had to do this much. He said, that's unrealistic. 
You're only responsible for that amount of recovery today. I remember one day, now you remember, he's an alcoholic, not a compulsive overeater. And I was at a uh, A meeting, as I was most afternoons, most noon meetings, and um, they give birthday cakes. And normally that didn't bother me, but he got a slice of cake and ate it really obnoxiously in front of me. He was doing it on purpose, smacking his lips and going, mm, you should have a piece of this. I mean, really laying it on. Well, I'm not afraid of him anymore. And I looked at him and I said, Tom, if you continue that, at your next birthday, I'm going to get you a rum cake. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, you'd be more honest if you got me a fruitcake with nuts on top. He never took himself seriously. He said, we need to take programs seriously, but not take ourselves seriously. Now, after being in program for a while, I needed to find a power greater in myself. Okay? As a child, because I was raised Jewish in the conservative movement, God was a untouchable entity that we prayed to, but nobody had anything to do with. It was kind of out there. One time a year, we would go to the high holidays, and God would judge you, and he would put you in the book of, of goodness or the book of death, and I didn't want to turn my life and my will over to care of that kind of God. So I started looking for a, a power greater than myself. I was working at UCLA at the time. And I went to everybody that I know in program and said, how do you get a higher power? And they gave me all wonderful ideas that only confused me and drove me absolutely nuts because I have a disease of more. So, and I'm an appeaser, so <laughs> you're trying to do what this one says and that one, not going to work. So what happened was I ended up going to an AA uh, Saturday night. It was a lecture dance, I think it was. And there was a wonderful lady there. I'm not sure if she's still alive. Her name was Dottie Shore. She was a circuit speaker. And, uh, and I knew her from, from uh, some other meetings and stuff. And Dottie spoke, and she spoke very well. And I went up to her and I said to her, you know, Dottie, I'm trying to find a power greater than myself, but I'm asking a lot of people. It's driving me crazy. She said, Ron, please don't do that. She said, what I did is I said, God, reveal yourself to me as you really are. And then start looking. I said, that's it? She said, it worked for me. So, and you don't have to believe it. That's the best part. <laughs> My sponsor always said, act as if you believe it. Works just as well. So I don't have to wait until I actually believe it. So I acted as if, and I said, dear God, please reveal yourself as you really are. What can I tell you? So then I go, to, I'm at UCLA, and I, I used to like during lunch to go into Westwood. And uh, I don't remember the name of the street, but whatever it was, Lacant, I don't know, whatever the name of the street was, there was a Christian bookstore. God has a sense of humor. <laughs> I walk into this Christian bookstore, this little Yiddish kid, and I go, do you have a Jewish section? <laughs> now, is that chutzpah or what? <laughs> chutzpah means nerve. So I, I go in there and I ask this, this woman, man, whatever, 
Uh, do you have a she says, he says, yes, we do. It's over there, and it's on the bottom. Now, Jews don't get on their knees, but I had to get on my knees <laughs> to look at the books. So I'm teachable, willing to follow any direction. I get on my knees, and I'm looking, and I find this wonderful book by Harold Kushner. This was before he wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and it was called When Children Ask About God. And I bought it, and I read it, and he talked about the fact that, uh, that at a portion of his life, a son or daughter, I don't remember, died, and he went through his mourning period, and then he, uh, he was very angry. And he thought, what am I angry about? And he said to himself, well, I know that God took my child because of something I did wrong. And he thought about that, and he said, you know, I'm a thinking human being. I'm a rabbi. And what do I believe about God that I would think that God would take my child to punish me? I must have a, not a healthy idea of God. And he said, I reevaluated so many things in my life. I reevaluated the idea that there are monsters in my closet or that, you know, if you're nice to people, they'll be nice to you, whatever it is. But I never, ever, ever gave myself the idea of reevaluating what I believed in, um, in God. Now, I want you to know that Jewish seminaries never spoke about God. And I spoke to a rabbi and I asked him why. And he said, because most rabbis have never dealt with their concept of God. Not Orthodox. Because Orthodox Jews, they have a commander. And the commander says, you will do this. They don't question. Because they're Orthodox. But conservative and reform are different. And I was shocked when I heard that why they should be any different than me. So I started looking. And what I got from that book was, it gave me permission to start looking at a different concept of a higher power. I was told to write down everything I want in a higher power and everything I don't want in a higher power, tear it in half, and throw away the part that I don't want in a higher power. I did it. I didn't follow it. It didn't work for me. It might work for somebody else. What worked for me was acting as if. They told me I needed to find something that was not me in a higher power. And I loved Star Trek. And in those days, it was with uh, whatever his name is, and uh, on Boston, whatever. Jack. And there was, there was a half-hour uh, series where he, he was, uh, this guy was on a planet, and this mist gave him everything that he needed and would come every day and surround him in mist. And I thought, that's what I want. I want a higher power that's going to surround me and hold me and protect me. That became my first higher power. As I learned more and more, my concept of a higher power changed. I learned that I could, because I let go of that idea that God was out to find things wrong with me so he could beat me up. And I let go of that. It took, it took time, took years. And I started recognizing 
that I could hire a higher power of my choosing. That took a long time because I kept thinking, you know, that lightning bolts were going to come down and hit me for even thinking that. But I started finding a higher power that only wanted good for me. And it was absolutely wonderful. Well, I got a job in Palm Springs eight years ago, and I moved. That was one of the most difficult things in my life. And I moved to Palm Springs, had a new job. That in itself is stressful. I didn't know anybody there. That's rather stressful. I didn't know where a dry cleaner was. You have no idea where that, you know, I mean, just not knowing where things are are very stressful. And that very first week, my mother died. And how was I told? I got a phone call that my mother had been arrested. My mother was 75. And I called the police and I said, uh, my name is so-and-so. And I was told that my mother was arrested. She's 75. What could she possibly have done? And she said, well, hold on. So she went back, came back, and said, oh, I'm sorry. We found her dead today. So that's how I learned. There was a wonderful, wonderful lady in program who had bought a house in Palm Springs, and she and her partner were there that weekend. I called her on the phone, and I said, I just found, that, found out that my, my mom died. She said, we're coming to pick you up. She picked me up, brought me over to her house, and they took care of me. Never thought that would ever happen. After a while, I went to meetings. I found meetings, and I went to meetings, and I cried. And I went and I talked about my mother. I talked to my mother in the car and I cried. I found out that I can cry and drive at the same time. <laughs> Never knew that. Um, and I did that, for a, I did that for a long time. And she sent me, a friend of mine in program sent me to a therapist who only deals with loss. And I went to this person. She said, why are you here? And I said, I'm here because I think I need a reality check. I'd never lost a parent before, and I don't know. So I told her what I did. She said, what have you done to take care of yourself? And I told her. I write letters to my mother, and I talk to my mother, and I, I go to meetings, and I talk about my mother, and I cry, and she, her eyes are like this. And I said, what's the matter? Therapists are not supposed to react. She said, I've been doing this for over 20 years, and I have never met a human being who took better care of themselves. And I said, it's because of program. Because I don't know how to mourn. But program taught me how to. This program, as far as I'm concerned, is a gift. It's a tremendous gift. The one thing I was told that when I go to a meeting, look for one thing that you get in a meeting, and write it down in your big book. And so that's what I do. And the reason is, because if you're compulsive like me, you'll hear one good idea in a meeting, and you'll go, oh my God, I love that idea. And then you'll hear another good idea, and you'll go, oh my God, I love that idea, but you forgot the first one. And I was told in program that it's not what I learn that brings recovery, it's what I practice that brings me recovery. So, and, that's, and remember, I'm only required to do that much of practicing today. You know? I have good days. I have bad days. I, I made up the three Ps. Pray, pitch, and phone. 
When I'm under, you know, a lot of stress, or not even so much, when I think, because the disease of compulsive overeating centers mainly in my mind, I get on the phone and I call somebody, and I call it telling on myself. Like this morning, I shared that I was frightened to come here and share. And the reason was because of my ego. I wanted all of you to love me and think that I was the greatest in the world. But I have to remember that I'm only here to share my experience, strength, and hope. And what anybody takes from it is their business. It has nothing to do with me. And I always say a prayer before I share. And the prayer is, God, help me to say something that will be of value to one person. And that's all. This program, as I said, is a gift. And I'm only responsible for doing a little at a time. We used to say years ago that the way you keep your weight off is running up and down the 12 steps. (laughs) And it's very true. It's very true. I feel so grateful. I don't work this program perfectly, and I don't expect to. And it's another reason that I get to keep coming back. Because if I had to do it perfectly, I wouldn't have stayed 27 years. Because, as you can tell, I have 25 years of abstinence. 27 years, I broke the abstinence. And I chose to do that at my cousin's wedding. And I thought I'd never get back, but I kept coming to meetings whether I ate or not. Did I know that I would ever get it again? I don't know. But I knew that there was something in these rooms that I wanted So I kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And then my last binge, which, by the way, was very strange. It was the first time I became aware that I never tasted anything after the first bite. Never knew that before. I went to a Tuesday night meeting. I went up to a guy who I didn't particularly like. And I said to him, I give up. And I've been abstinent ever since. But... It's a give and take between me and my higher power. My higher power is the one who gives me the strength to keep doing it every, every, every day. I've been dealing with depression because I'm not working. And what does program say to me? There's a chapter in the big book, Into Action. So, how do you get out of depression? Get up and go do something. My sponsor used to say to me, it's better that you scrub your toilet than you think. (laughs) It's very true. Because if I'm trying to make that that toilet, you know, sparkling or the kitchen floor or whatever, it's not easy to do a lot of thinking. So I hope I said something that was of value. If not, keep coming back because you will hear something that will be of value to you. And uh, all I can say is this is an absolute wonderful program because I have been given so many gifts and I really appreciate it. Thanks.